Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About the Police. When Sir Robert Peel created the Metropolitan Police in London in 1829, he set out the principles which would become the canon of modern policing. Among them is the famous statement that the police are the people and the people are the police. He meant that the maintenance of order was the right and duty of every citizen, and paid police were simply the people's delegate in the exercise of these prerogatives. Therefore, Peel said, the police must always cultivate the approval, cooperation, and consent of the public as the first condition of their existence. Today this consent is less automatic and less universal than it once was. And the malaise goes deeper than the scandalous headlines about racism, corruption, and brutality. There's also an underlying crisis of soaring costs and declining ability to do anything about crime. There's a sense that the police have grown more distant from the public, and there's growing competition from private security companies. Tonight's program addresses this identity crisis and looks at what various police forces are doing to find a new groove. It's part four of a special 10-hour series called In Search of Security. Here's David Cayley. When Sir Robert Peel put the first uniformed police onto the streets of London in 1829, he was explicit about their purpose, to prevent crime and disorder. It was by how well they accomplished that purpose that they should be judged, he said. During the next century, crime and disorder did decrease, not just in London, but in all Western cities. How much the police actually had to do with it is debatable, but they were certainly associated with the change. And by the middle years of the 20th century, the police generally enjoyed the public confidence which Peel had said was their main requirement. All this has changed since the 1960s, when crime began a sustained rise that only began to tail off in the 1990s. Benoit Dupont has studied police services in Australia and now teaches criminology at the University of Montreal. People became richer. They possessed more in terms of wealth, in terms of um, possessions like cars and things to steal. Actually, the more you have to steal in your home, and the more chances you've got that it's going to attract the, um, the attention of someone who doesn't have all these things and they're going to try to take them from you. So from the 1950s to 1980s, I think you had, uh, you know, depending on the countries, but the number of property crimes almost were multiplied by four over 30 years. And actually the number of clearance, the clearance rates decreased at about the same pace. So that in the end for property crimes, the police probably are only able now to solve 10 or 15 percent of the cases. And actually, we don't even bother anymore to ask the police to make an investigation about uh, a robbery or a stolen car. We just go to the police for insurance purposes. We don't expect that any officer will spend any of his time investigating anything unless it's a homicide or it's a, something much more serious. Police had always had a limited ability to solve crimes, but they had a better chance in communities where they were well-connected and well-informed. The increasing diversity and anonymity of cities made their job harder, 
and their estrangement from the public was aggravated, Benoit Dupont says, by new technologies. Up until 1950s, 1960s, you had police officers walking the beat you know, on foot and just talking to shop owners and the members of the public and, and getting to know the neighborhood they were patrolling every day. And, you know, when you had the shift to car patrol, one of the rationale was that two police officers would be able to cover a lot more ground and that you would have an efficiency of scale because with a number only 10 cars and, and 20 police officers, you would cover a whole city that previously you would have needed probably 100 police officers to walk every neighborhood. But the counterpart to that was that police officers stayed in their car, only answered calls for service, and only entered into relationships with people when they were not at the best because they were either needing the police or they were in a conflictual situation with the police. And also that the police officers became like prisoners of a bubble inside the police car because they had the radio, they had all the equipment in there, and they were driving from one place to the other, just like uh, firemen. So it became known as um, fire brigade policing, uh, just running from one fire to the other and not actually having the time to take to get to know people and people's problems. This increasing isolation of the police, in Benoit Dupont's view, was compounded by the nature of their organizations. Policing traditionally has been a lifelong career, with recruits hired young and senior executives who have come up through the ranks. This has tended to produce a somewhat enclosed mentality and a habit of command rather than consultation. Police organizations like to be in a vertical relationship with people and other organizations, meaning that they want always to be on top and other organizations and or their members to be, you know, underneath. And they want to have this kind of very uh, pyramidal, hierarchical relationship. But we now live in societies which value horizontal relationships. We all like to believe that we are all equals and that we all have our word to say about our opinion to express and we want to be treated fairly and we do not want to be said what to do or what to think and we also because we get a lot of information from the media we all also think that we know pretty much a lot about pretty much everything and so this you have this kind of situation where the police want to be seen as in the past as the expert on crime but you also have growing segments of the population and other groups or other organizations also claiming expertise over what's happening in terms of crime and security. According to Benoit Dupont, the authoritarian note in police culture is increasingly out of tune with an egalitarian popular culture. The isolation imposed by cars, radios, computers, and endless calls for service adds to the problem. And on top of this has come a growing body of research showing that much of what the police do is ineffective in preventing crime. David Kennedy is a senior researcher in criminal justice policy at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. The great preponderance of what police departments do is officers patrolling in cars, taking calls for rapid response, and when all that fails, doing detective work. 
And what people had come to understand, partly through academic research, but primarily through their own working experience, is that none of it worked very well. And we know this. We know that preventive patrol, so-called, driving around in cars, does not very much prevent crime. Rapid response hardly ever gets anybody in the act. Almost always you arrive too late and it's over. And the kind of detective work that everybody knows from TV and fiction is almost never pursued in practice. Basically what detectives do is process paperwork. And if somebody can tell them who done it, that being a victim or a, a first responding patrol officer or something like that, then that crime gets cleared. If nobody can tell them, almost invariably it doesn't get cleared. The very high profile exceptional cases, of course, are different, but the run of the mill cases go like that. And what we learned about regular traditional policing is that each of those key activities don't work very well. And because those are the activities that make up routine police work, what this said was that policing, in fact, doesn't work very well. The main response to the crisis I've just sketched has been community policing, as it's called. One of its great exponents in Canada is Bob Lunny. He retired as chief of police in Ontario's Peel region in 1997, after a 44-year career with various police services, and he remains involved as a consultant. He recalls the style of policing that prevailed when he first joined the RCMP in the 1950s. Hierarchical, with a lot of uh, emphasis on uh, command and control. Uh, we were very uh, involved with uh, the law and uh, very legalistic in interpretations of the law, which we didn't stray from. We were law enforcers more than anything else. We didn't engage in w what we called social work at the time. It was a very disciplined style of policing based on cars driven by the radio. Essentially, that was it. And why did it begin to change? What sort of pressures? Because it wasn't, wor it wasn't working anymore. In the 1970s, not really in the 1960s, but in the 1970s, uh, the Canadian police uh, began to feel the impact of change, uh, particularly with youth. And it was evident that the tactics we had used in the past just weren't working anymore. Our crime rates were beginning to accelerate. Uh, there was uh, levels of disorder that we were unable to control with the old tactics a disrespect for authority, which had been assumed before. People began to question the laws. They began to question the way in which the police were carrying out their duties. Uh, and they be began to question a lot of the whole concepts under which society had functioned up until that time. And we had to adjust. This adjustment to a changed world was what came to be called community policing. As chief of police in Edmonton between 1974 and 1986, Bob Lunny was identified with a group of progressive chiefs who introduced this approach. We realized that we couldn't do it our, on our own anymore. 
uh, that the problems were, were too big for the, the tools and the concepts that the police had been using. And we needed to establish partnerships, partnerships with the communities, partnerships with uh, neighborhood groups, partnerships with uh, what I call institutional groups, that is uh, the uh, fire and ambulance, uh, with uh, social services, uh, with uh, public housing, with uh, the city engineers, and, uh, and a variety of partnerships that just, it began in the center and just rippled outwards. You were forever discovering someone you could work with. And together, it had a synergistic effect. You could be much more effective working together than you could working apart. The second big change uh, was the, the advent of problem solving. Wherever you get a, a group of uh, citizens meeting with the police and you say, well, what do you think your problems are? The police will put up one set and they'll be diametrically different than what the public will put up. Police see robberies, homicide, drugs. The community sees speeding on residential streets, graffiti, sometimes domestic violence, and uh, use causing disorder, use causing nuisance. And those two agendas are exactly the same as you would find anywhere in North America. So it was pretty clear signals from the public that they wanted in, that they were unhappy with the way the police had been carrying out their mandate and the attitude of the police in working with them, and they wanted change. Bob Lunny, by many accounts, was quite successful in reorienting the Edmonton Police Service. But he acknowledges that reform has tended to stall in recent years. One reason has been the militance of police unions. This is not universal. Bob Lunny says that two of the three police associations he worked with were cooperative and shared his goals. But there have been a number of cases in Canada where unions have blocked changes sought by the community, leaving the chief caught in the crossfire. Another thing holding back change, Benoit Dupont says, is public demand for emergency response from the police. According to him, this locks the police into a structure which makes real community policing virtually impossible. You hear a lot about community policing, but you don't see it a lot. And the reason is because the police organizations are very reticent to use it. And even the ones that are trying to implement it have a lot of trouble trying to persuade their officers to do it. It's mainly done in a kind of public relations exercise. And it's not really a sea change reform of policing. This is much more on the surface. And there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, you know, when you're shifting to community policing, the pressure of the calls from the public is exactly the same. So you don't have that much time to dedicate to community policing unless you get more money to hire more people. But of course, there is not more money around. So what do you do? And the other reason is that there is no really an incentive to reward the people, the police officers that are really into doing community policing because, of course, the police unions don't want to have this kind of merit-based system. And that these are a number of the reasons why community policing is maybe not as common as we would like it to be or as some police organization would like us to believe it is. The idea of community policing brought real change to some Canadian police forces in the 1970s and 1980s.
But community policing faces big obstacles, and there has been a strong temptation to claim to be doing it while actually carrying on business as usual, which has somewhat confused the issue. Harvard's David Kennedy is a strong proponent of community policing, but he definitely does not think of it as business as usual. As he said earlier, business as usual in policing means a set of received practices that don't really work, except perhaps as reassurance, a sign that something is being done. What community policing means to him is working with everyone involved in a situation to carefully define a problem and then try to find an intelligent and focused solution. A classic example was the Boston Gun Project, in which he was one of the main movers. This was a team that I worked with out of the Kennedy School at Harvard. The primary partner was the Boston Police Department. The, the issue of the day, not just in Boston, but throughout the United States, was youth gun violence, which was epidemic in the wake of the crack epidemic in the United States. And we simply did what all the community policing scripts said one ought to do, which was to assemble a lot of very good, very experienced frontline practitioners from Boston agencies. The police department, probation, parole, prosecutors, gang outreach workers, some others. And most of the important work got done behind closed doors with those people in which the research team, which which was my team, said to these folks, look, we've got a couple of hours. Tell us what's going on out there, which amazingly enough, except it won't be amazing to anybody who knows law enforcement, nobody had ever done before. And what they said was, this is... The, you know, the story at the time was, this is random, it's inexplicable, it's taken over minority communities, there's no sense to it. These offenders are, the term of the moment, with super predators. They're vicious, unpredictable, remorseless, immoral. They don't care what happens to them, they don't care what happens to anybody else. I mean, it was really an Armageddon script. And what we found, again, following on the guidance of these frontline folks, was something quite different. And it was that hardly anybody was involved. Those who were involved were very well known to these frontline folks because they were very chronically criminal. They tended to be grouped up on the street into small drug groups, which in Boston, we, we use this word gang but this was not gang life like Chicago or L.A. or any of that. These were very small, fluid neighborhood groups that had entered into crack trafficking without being in any way sophisticated, well-managed drug-dealing organizations. They had guns. They were young men, and as young men in groups will, they had conflicts, and in this atmosphere, what resulted were not only shootings, but something very much like vendettas. This was Hatfield and McCoy or Sicilian or the antebellum American South. This was really an, an honor society on the street. And we were actually able to sit down with these frontline practitioners and chart out which groups were fighting with whom. 
And it was then simply a process of reaching out directly to these groups and saying to them, look, gentlemen, we know who you are. We know what you're doing. And from now on, anybody in, in one of your groups kills somebody, we as assembled law enforcement people are going to reach out and sanction the entire group. Even if we can't prosecute the shooter, which is often the case, we know what's happening here and we will focus drug enforcement, warrant service, probation, parole, we'll take your unregistered cars away, we'll stick uniformed officers out in your drug markets. So even if we can't make any arrests, nobody's going to make any money for six weeks, we'll talk to your parents. There is going to be a response directed at this group when there is violence. And if you want to steer clear of that kind of very special re response, don't let any of your friends shoot anybody. And after backing that up just a few times, it all basically stopped. And it was fundamentally just that easy. How did you solve the honor problem? What really we think happened was that this response was the adults taking over and that the reason this was all going on in the superheated fashion it was was because nobody was protecting these kids from each other, granted, but the fact is every time they walked out the door they were scared. When you, you actually get to know these kinds of offenders, they are not stony, immune, don't care kind of people. What they are is petrified, and they ought to be. We did calculations that showed that if you were in this life, and only a couple of percent of the kids even in these neighborhoods, in fact, were caught up in this, almost everybody steers clear. But if, you're, if you've crossed that line, it's more dangerous being on the street every day than it is being in the infantry in Vietnam. Nobody was protecting them. A lot of these crimes don't get solved. So they're seeing people who shot their friends at school every day. And they're young men. And the results are really quite predictable. What this did was let them say to each other, what privately they all wanted to say, a lot of them anyway, wanted to say all along, which is, we really better not do this. And because we demonstrated that there could be and would be a very focused response to the shooting, that was both credible and it was what we thought of as an honorable exit. They didn't have to lose face anymore by saying, let's not do this drive-by. Whereas before, nobody could afford to take that step, even though privately they may not have wanted any part of what was going on. And so it was really a way of, once again, having the adults establish adult authority in the neighborhoods and letting the kids once again be kids. The Boston Gun Project took precise aim at a specific problem and then brought a certain pragmatic ingenuity to bear on its solution. This was critically important to the success of the project, in David Kennedy's view, because policing is not designed to address what are often called root causes. Define your problem too generally, he says, and there's little left to do but wring your hands.
as long as police departments, prosecutors on, on the authority side or prevention people and social workers and community activists typically on the other side, as long as they look at a problem, and, and we can just use, use youth violence as an example here, as long as you look at these problems as deeply, deeply rooted in things that we're really not very good at changing, like people's moral character, which is what criminal justice tends to look at, or really fundamental community characteristics, which is what root causes tend to look at. As long as we frame problems like that, we're not very effective because the fact is we simply don't have very good tools for changing those things. Never have, maybe never will. Certainly not very quickly, which is what one needs when one has an emergency problem like youth violence or street corner drug markets in a community or something like that. But there are different and quite powerful and, and accurate ways to look at these issues. And the, the youth violence diagnosis, which began in Boston and which has since turned out to be both true and open to the same kind of intervention in a lot of other places. Boston did this first, but a lot of other places have done it since quite effectively. We can also say, you know, there's something fairly superficial here. And yes, it comes out of much deeper things. But we can also quite accurately say what we've got here is a problem of in Boston, 60 groups with 1,300 individuals in it feuding with each other. And maybe we can affect that. And it turns out to be possible to look at a lot of traditionally very intractable problems in similar kinds of ways, which then starts making one feel somewhat more optimistic that we can be effective. David Kennedy's use of the word superficial here hints at why the approach he favors is sometimes unpopular with those who believe they have root causes in their sights. In Boston, for example, the fact that the gun project was, in essence, an enforcement solution tended to get lost over time. The crime reductions in Boston came to be called the Boston Miracle. It was a firestorm of attention like nothing anybody had ever seen before. This was, youth violence was the biggest crime problem in the country. The results in Boston were extraordinarily dramatic and everybody in the world paid attention to it. The president came to town, every reporter on any crime beat in the country came to town. And in the midst of all that, politically in Boston, a set of what are essentially fictions started to be uttered because the real kernel of what happened, which is that law enforcement were able to get the attention of hardcore street offenders and deter them through the threat of very focused enforcement was not really a story that the powers in the city wanted to promulgate. And the story that ended up being promulgated was more about community action and service provision and the actions of 
some very charismatic street ministers, all of which had some truth and none of which, in fact, summed to what had really been effective. And by the time the street started to come unglued again, that fiction really predominated. And so it was to those means, once again, that the city turned because lots of people by then in town, having learned about this from the newspapers, really believed that. And the backbone of what had in fact been effective, which was this very customized face-to-face -face deterrence approach with street offenders, was pretty much lost. This is Ideas on CBC Radio 1. Tonight, David Cayley is presenting the fourth program of a 10-hour series called In Search of Security. What stopped kids from shooting each other in Boston was an artful piece of policing, David Kennedy says. But politicians, media, even police tended to prefer a sunnier, more edifying story. What works isn't always what people want to believe. But there is one police department, according to its admirers, that has consistently stuck with what works during the last 10 years, and that's the New York City police. Between 1993 and 1998, major crimes in New York City decreased by more than 50%. The murder rate, generally thought to be the most accurate crime statistic, fell from well over 2,000 dead in 1990 to just over 600 in 1998. The change coincided with a major shakeup in the police department, which had begun in 1993-94 with the election of Rudolf Giuliani as mayor and his appointment of William Bratton as commissioner of police. At first, many criminologists were skeptical. They could point to scores of studies showing that police had little or no impact on the amount of crime. Besides, crime had fallen everywhere, they said, even if not quite as dramatically, and murder had decreased so much because a volatile drug economy had settled down. But over time, the magnitude and the duration of the decline began to convince even some of the doubters. Others, like Eli Silverman, were believers from the start. He's a professor at New York's John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the author of NYPD Battles Crime. He says that one of the keys to the New York reforms was strict accountability for results. This was enforced at a weekly 7 a.m. meeting between William Bratton's management team and the city's local precinct commanders. Sometimes a problem would emerge where the top level thought the lower level was getting certain equipment. Well, why is this not being carried out? Well, we, we don't have the equipment. Well, we ordered the equipment. We designated that equipment to you uh, three months ago. Well, sir, we didn't get it. And then they, would, then they would go around the room and try to figure out why they didn't get it. And the person, <laughs> the person who was responsible for not getting it to them, really, there was hell to pay. And there would be, oftentimes, it would be rough. And you couldn't, you were identified, you couldn't fade into the woodwork. People who were precinct commanders for the first time were known 
by the top level. And so when it came time to promotion, when it came time to movement, the top level knew who these people were. They weren't just names with records. And they had seen how they performed. And many people, you know, not in all cases, but I would say there was more uh, movement and a, a movement, positive movement based in, and promotion based on performance rather than just who knew who, which, of course, there is still <laughs> uh, uh, an amount there, as in all organizations. But more and more people who had a positive record were being moved forward. Accountability and advancement by merit were both critical features of what came to be called the New York police model. During the first year of his administration, Commissioner William Bratton replaced more than two-thirds of the city's 76 precinct commanders. These local commanders got more power and more responsibility. Equally important, Eli Silverman says, were new systems for the timely sharing of information. Crime statistics had formerly been gathered three to six months after the fact, and then only as a contribution to the FBI's national survey. Now they were tabulated weekly and used in a citywide process called CompStat, short for Compare Statistics. The day-to-day -day deployment of police was based on this up-to-date information about what was actually going on in the city. Computerized crime mapping also became a critical tool. The pictorial mapping was very important because you could actually see the distribution of crimes. And at the same time, you could juxtapose with that the actual deployment of people. So, for example, if a particular area you had a high amount of drug crimes, and then you would say they were on Saturday and Sunday, which they more likely be on the weekend, and then you would at the same time juxtapose on that the hours that your narcotics offices worked. <laughs> and they would find, for example, that narcotics offices would have a, you know, Monday through Friday and off on the weekend. It was just writ large on there. There was nothing you could hide. It was there. So the mapping and the meshing of that and the comparing of that with deployment was a, a wonderful tool. Another important piece of the New York model was the use of what was called civil enforcement in place of the criminal law. This involved the coordination of various municipal powers, nuisance bylaws, licensing regulations, and the like, in aid of police objectives. Establishments that were generating crime were closed for violating license conditions or infringing some other municipal regulation. Squeegeeing and panhandling were discouraged on similar grounds. This was hailed as an innovation in policing. But according to Mariana Valverde, it actually looks to the past. The word police once meant the regulation of the entire civil order. And in American cities, rules governing the conduct of every sort of business are still called police regulations. Mariana Valverde is a professor at the University of Toronto's School of Criminology. I think what happened is all through the 60s and 70s, you had all kinds of victories for civil liberties groups that made it impossible for police forces to use criminal statutes. So you couldn't just charge a beggar with some criminal offense. 
because the courts have said, wait a minute, you can't have status offenses. Same thing happened in Canada, right? The vagrancy statute was thrown out in 1972. Well, you couldn't use those anymore. But, you know, soon enough, they discovered there were all these regulatory statutes, not part of the criminal law, but part of municipal regulations, part of bylaws in Canada, ordinances in the, in the United States, that allowed you to govern space. And maybe you couldn't throw the beggar in jail, but you could put him on a bus and send him out to the burbs, as Giuliani did. So I think a lot of municipal authorities woke up to the fact that they had always had these powers. But what was different, I think, is that the power started to be used in a more visible way, sometimes to address problems that had previously been either addressed by the criminal law or not addressed at all, as in the problem of pornography shops, right? Well, at one point, you couldn't have a pornography shop because the stuff would be considered obscene and you'd be criminally charged. Well, the, then the obscenity law changes, it's more liberal, you can't just go around criminally prosecuting a porn shop. For a while, people think, oh, there's nothing we can do. And then they sit back and think, aha, but you need a license to have any kind of shop. And you've always needed a license to run any kind of shop in the city. These are not new powers. These are ancient medieval powers. And then they started to use them, in a sense, instead of the criminal law. The same thing happened in Ontario with the Safe Streets Act. The squeegee kids you know, 20 or 30 years ago would have been charged with some kind of criminal offense or other breach of the peace or something. Well, the use of the criminal law has been curtailed by the courts, by the Charter of Rights, and so on. And if you say, oh, this isn't about criminalizing squeegee kids, we're not doing that. We're just making streets safe. It's the governance of space. You read the Safe Streets Act, there's nothing about persons. It's all about spaces. It is illegal to ask for money within X number of meters of an ATM. That seems like just the governance of space. It seems like the same thing as you can't park your car within X meters of a hydrant. Seems like purely regulatory. The use of regulatory power to move people off the street and close problematic establishments in Toronto or New York has become known as zero-tolerance policing. This is sometimes connected to the so-called broken windows hypothesis. Named after an article by criminologists George Kelling and James Q. Wilson that appeared in the Atlantic Monthly in 1982, it holds that toleration of signs of disorder like broken windows, graffiti, or public urination makes places feel abandoned, lawless, and unloved, and this impression encourages crime. In other words, take care of the little things, and the big things will take care of themselves. This is common sense, and it certainly did play its part in the New York model. But it's an aspect that Eli Silverman thinks has been overblown. Yes, it is important. But as explaining the recent decline, I think it's a, a part of it. But if you just hang your head on that, then I think... You're missing the boat because there have been many periods in many police departments where a more assertive policing and focusing on minor crimes has occurred and to no avail because these crimes were not recorded. They were not linked to other crimes. So you had no follow-through method. It was a particular effort. It was a particular, we'll go gangbusters in a particular area and then we'll just leave it. And it had no permanence. It had no follow-up study on it. 
It was just done. So there is a connection, but it can be taken overboard. What was really critical in New York, in Eli Silverman's view, was good information, good coordination, strict accountability for results, and a feeling that enterprise and imagination would be rewarded rather than punished. But sometimes this led to excesses, he says, when precincts went too far in mechanically copying each other's successes. In Brooklyn, there were a lot of robberies by kids who were organized. They were robbing people, and they were on their bikes. Well, how do you stop that? So the police then said, all right, we're going to stop kids who don't meet certain uh, regulations, bike regulations, whether it was bells or whatever, and they would stop them, and they would catch these kids. And that made sense. They reduced the burglaries. But then other precincts said, oh, wow, we got our, they got their numbers up that way. Let's just stop everybody. <laughs> and they, they took that concept that was tailored for a particular precinct, and because there might have been pressure for numbers, they then took it and went a little wild on it, and they'd stop people, and then they were, they were annoying people because it was viewed as harassment. Excessive zeal is an obvious danger when the pressure for results becomes so strong. Eli Silverman believes that this tendency is generally under control. But he does portray the New York City Police Department as having been gripped by a revolutionary enthusiasm. What's more, he says, this revolution has been successfully institutionalized and is now being driven by much higher public expectations of the police. I remember when um, there was rumor that when Bratton's successor, Safer, was going to take over the department, and I interviewed him, and I had, rumor, I had heard rumors that he was going to drop the Comstat process. He wanted to do it his way. And when I interviewed him, one, one of the times I interviewed him, I asked him that question, and he, he was very adamant. He said, no, I never contemplated that because I felt it was a major way of holding people accountable. And now I don't think anyone would drop it. And what's more is that there's an expectation that it will continue. In the old days, the expectation was, you know, this is sort of inevitability that crime would be at this level. I think now the expectation is we've taken it, we've had this long string, is that we should, this should be, this should continue. The new way of policing New York did not simply fall from the sky in 1994. There had been a number of earlier reform and anti-corruption initiatives that had brought the department to the point where the new style could successfully take root. Nor was New York as bad before or as good afterwards as some of the Bratton-era hype suggested. But Eli Silverman does offer persuasive evidence for his view of the New York City Police Department as the vanguard of a policing revolution. And David Kennedy largely shares his opinion. What has been most revolutionary about the New York Department over the last 10 years, in his view, has been its willingness to take responsibility for its results, because this is exactly what criminal justice in general does not do, he says. It doesn't hold itself accountable for results, and for the most part, others don't hold it accountable for results. When you talk to people in law enforcement about their 
how they're responding to a problem, what you tend to get is a list of activities. Here are the steps we're taking. Whether it's working or not is often not even addressed. And there's a kind of belief in criminal justice in general that if things aren't working, one of two things holds. One is that the system, so-called, which in practice isn't a system at all, somehow isn't doing its part. So police like to shout at prosecutors, and prosecutors like to shoot at, shout at judges, and everybody's mad at probation and parole. There's always another actor to look at and say, if only they would do their job. But in practice, it's pretty much impossible to actually make all that happen. The other thing that people in criminal justice like to say is until parents start raising their kids right or somebody does something about the drug problem, we can't be effective. So there's a, a great willingness to point at broad social issues and say we're pretty much helpless in the face of that. And very often we simply stay there. And one of the things that we can say about the experience in New York, what I think is inarguably true, whether one feels that policing in New York had a big impact or a small impact on crime, my, my own belief is that it was pretty substantial, but that's a, a debate that will never stop. Whether one likes the actual tactics that were pursued in New York, and for my part, I don't like a lot of them. What absolutely happened in New York was that Bill Bratton and the team that took over NYPD sat up straight and said, we are going to make sure this department performs. We are going to figure out things that work around these problems. We are not going to expect anybody else to do anything different. We are going to figure out what we can do to be effective here. And we are not going to wait for the world to change and society to revamp itself. We are going to hold ourselves responsible for thinking this through and figuring out approaches that will work. And they did. And they still are. Accountability for results is a far-reaching principle, especially if you accept David Kennedy's premise that most policing is not about what to do, but about whom to blame. It demands, among other things, that the police take a broad view of the consequences of their actions. This may be a sort of peculiarly American example that I'm about to trot out, but in this war on drugs, for instance, in the United States, most urban departments do a huge amount of street drug enforcement, largely because they can't think of anything else to do, and so that's what they do. A lot of American jurisdictions have bad problems with street drug sales. It's not as easy as people think to make arrests in those markets, but one can do it, and a lot of departments put a lot of energy into that. The result over time is that in these largely minority communities, shocking proportions of the young black male, sometimes young Hispanic male, population end up with felony records. And it can reach over 50% and has in a lot of American jurisdictions. At which point, 
everybody says, well, we need employment alternatives to the drug trade. We need jobs. We need job development. We need economic development. We need job training. And people do what they can to make that happen. A lot of these efforts don't work very well. Even when there are opportunities, a lot of these young men don't take them. And then we say, ah, they're super predators, or you know, we go to one of those places. They're not even, they're not even doing what they, they might. Well, how could it be otherwise when your career has been effectively ended before it began because nobody's going to hire you with a felony record? You can't get a good job with a felony record. You can get rotten entry-level jobs where you spend the rest of your, your life. And when you talk to these guys, that's what they say. They say, why should I get a job at McDonald's? I'm not going to make any money and I'll never go anywhere. And they're right. And that may be partly because of their own attitude, but it's also partly because we have done something that makes it impossible for them to aspire to anything higher. And in communities where there is this kind of arrest density, it has these terrible ripple effects. They don't do well in their careers, so they're not very appealing husbands. And that feeds into social life, into single parent families. And the police department in these places will say, we're doing a really good job. We're arresting everybody. You know, the prosecutor's falling down, the judge is falling down, but we're doing our job. Well, in doing their job, they're guaranteeing that the community is going to remain damaged. And that kind of thing happens all the time in law enforcement. This kind of self-defeating policing happens, David Kennedy says, because the police, in his words, can't think of anything else to do. His example suggests that accountability for results requires a certain foresight and not just a more diligent enforcement of law. Policing, he says, needs to become more intelligent, more imaginative, and more resourceful. But such reform is difficult. The rituals of old-style policing are deeply ingrained, and public opinion often yaws between asking too much of the police and asking too little. After 1996, veterans of the New York Revolution were hired in Philadelphia, Baltimore, and New Orleans, but proved unable to produce the same results. Nevertheless, David Kennedy says finally, here and there, a new kind of policing is beginning to take hold. There's something really quite large and important happening which is that in a sloppy, imprecise, fitful fashion, people in criminal justice, people in city government, community people, mayors, media people are beginning to get this idea that you can do this stuff. And that's new. So the details of Boston or New York or San Diego, for instance, which has done very good things in a more problem-by-problem problem kind of way. There are these stories from a lot of, of cities in the United States now. Add up to 
a very new reality, which is that one way or another, and people love to fight over the particular approaches, but the particular approaches don't matter so much as the tendency. And the tendency is becoming pretty clear, which is that if you give up on just doing the same thing day in and day out, even though you know it doesn't work, and if you step back and think clearly and strategically about what you're trying to do, and I end up thinking most importantly, if you hold yourself and your organization strictly accountable for doing the work and for showing results, and if you don't show results, that you keep on thinking about it until you come up with something that does show results. If you take that approach, you can be very, very effective. And that's an idea that people are beginning to absorb that even 10 years ago would have seemed like a fantasy. And it's not a fantasy anymore. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part four of In Search of Security by David Cayley. Our 10-hour series continues tomorrow night with a program about the regulation of policing. This series was inspired by an international conference organized by the Law Commission of Canada. Our thanks to the Commission and its Director of Research, Dennis Cooley. Production tonight was by Dave Field, Richard Handler was the editorial consultant, and Liz Nage, the associate producer. A transcript of the series is available for $25. Tapes or CDs of the 10 programs cost $75. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Email us at ideas at cbc.ca or call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. News follows, then the arts today, and between the cars.